This week on Right Now, was Jeffrey Epstein's paedophilia just the tip of the iceberg? Journalist and writer Whitney Webb is on the line from Chile to talk about her book, One Nation Under Blackmail. The book exposes the lesser-known ring around Jeffrey Epstein, as well as the crime syndicates that work within US, UK and Israeli intelligence, using blackmail to bribe world leaders. Watch the full episode by clicking onto iconic.com to start a free seven-day. Hello and welcome to Right Now. It dawned on me this week there's a glaring question that people seem to be avoiding. How do politicians that earn hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars a year have a personal wealth of hundreds of millions of pounds or dollars? Now don't get me wrong, earning hundreds of thousands sounds like a pretty decent gig, but it wouldn't amass you a similar wealth to that of, say, a sports franchise owner or a Hollywood A-lister. So what gives? Where does this additional income come from? Does access to privileged information give them an advantage in the stock market, or is it even more sinister? Are the policies they introduce that affect all of us actually the policies of the highest bidder? The late comedian Robin Williams said that politicians should wear jackets with their sponsors on akin to a Formula One racing driver. Now, that would be a start. The media never asked this, but they do give us some low-lying fruit from time to time. Labour leader Keir Starmer was found to have breached parliamentary code by failing to divulge free festival tickets, trips to football matches and other gifts. But that's not going to amass you great wealth, so it just feels like we're being thrown an orbital bone while the skeleton legs it back into the closet. Now imagine a scenario where a lad who works for minimum wage in your local fish and chip shop arrives in a top-of-the-market Range Rover, takes off his brand-new Rolex so he doesn't get it greasy. You'd be asking questions, and so would HMRC or the IRS. Yet when it's politicians, it's accepted, it's unquestioned. Why? Renowned journalist Whitney Webb, who we've been very privileged to have had on the show before, has recently released a book documenting the crimes of notorious paedophile Jeffrey Epstein and how they connect into a crime syndicate, US and Israeli intelligence. One Nation Under Blackmail shows the huge influence these networks have over politics and therefore our lives. Whitney, thanks for coming on. Could, could you better give us a, a sort of a basic outline of, of, of what this book's about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, the book is divided into two parts, two volumes, actually. So the first part um, is basically outlining the network that would later go on to enable Jeffrey Epstein, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and their activities. Um, and so uh, this group has cropped up throughout various scandals um, over the years. So in Iran-Contra, for example, they were identified in, in testimony as the Enterprise, which was the name that these people used to refer to themselves as. Um, but other people, like the, the late journalist Danny Casalero, called them the octopus. They've had different names over the years. So essentially what I do in part one is trace this group back to its origin, uh, which is essentially, um, as I pinpoint it, beginning with Operation Underworld, which was when uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence during World War II um, in the United States uh, formally aligned itself uh, with organized crime networks, specifically the National Crime Syndicate. 
Um, you, you know, and this was justified out of wartime necessity, but basically U.S. intelligence got in bed with organized crime at that time, and it ended up being good business, and so they essentially stayed, um, they essentially fused over time. And oh, it's no coincidence, really, that these people decades later refer to themselves as the enterprise, right? It's, it's essentially a business, um, but a business that engages in illegal activity, uh, arms smuggling, drug smuggling, sex trafficking, um, all sorts of activities uh, like that. And a lot of financial crimes, which is a major focus of the book, because the more you look at Jeffrey Epstein, and the Maxwells as well, you know, they're not just sex criminals, right? They're also financial criminals on a massive scale. And that's what Robert Maxwell, right, is most notorious for, but not as notorious uh, for his espionage activities, even though he arguably should be with the Promise software scandal and things like that. So that's essentially part one of the book. Um, and then part two is placing Jeffrey Epstein uh, and the Maxwell uh, uh, siblings, the children of Robert Maxwell, in that uh, context and connecting them to the people that are outlined in the first uh, volume of the of the book and um, you know also digging up a lot of things on uh, Epstein and the Maxwells that a lot of people have not uh, been able to or have, have yet to really talk about um, and there's some really uh, startling things that I think are going to be um, uh, coming out <laughs> in connection with um, this book specifically the uh, Epstein Clinton relationship uh, while Clinton was in the White House just really um, uh, extreme stuff to say the least Wow. Well, we're where we are now in Derby, actually, the, the football club was owned by Robert Maxwell many, many years ago. And actually everyone in the city kind of knew that he was dodgy, but it was sort of like, that was like one of those accepted things. Oh yeah, he's well dodgy. Yeah. Anyway, like, what do you want to drink sort of thing? It's bizarre how these people can kind of infiltrate and just be allowed to get on with it. Obviously with, with the title, um, uh, Blackmail, Blackmail was, was massive in the Epstein case in the sense that there were cameras on Epstein Island and it was kind of kind of mm -hmm. like an open secret really that people were being filmed getting up to no good. Um, obviously not only would those sort of nuggets of blackmailable material be able to keep him out of jail as they did for a long long time but but they could they can affect policy as well. Was that what was going on that it was a case of we have this on you you will you will as a politician or whatever you will enact X Y and Z or else. Yeah, well, this was going on with Epstein, and there's no, it's really no coincidence that a lot of the people he was targeting uh, were intimately involved with the Democratic Party, whether it was the Clintons, whether it was George Mitchell um, or Bill Richardson. You know, those are some of the big political names that have been tied uh, to his blackmail activities, and they're all, uh, you know, they all belong to the Democratic Party, and a lot of them were involved in sensitive uh, Middle East negotiations that were obviously of of interest to Israel. But as I, you know, uh, try and show, especially in the first part of the book, is that Epstein's activities as it relates to political blackmail um, are hardly an anomaly. There's been people that have been doing this for decades and decades and decades. And one of the first big names that got politically blackmailed and this way was the or first and longtime director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. And it's for that reason that Hoover never went after organized crime. And Hoover himself would end up uh, blackmailing uh, congressmen. Um, and it was actually one of the key people involved in that um, sexual blackmail operation was uh, Donald Trump's mentor, uh, Roy Cohn. He was a pretty notorious lawyer that sort of bridged uh, the worlds of organized crime and, and politics uh, in, in some pretty significant ways. But there's some other people as well. Um, Robert Keith Gray is a key 
a fixture in the first part of the book. He was a big uh, public relations employee. Uh, his clients included uh, Robert Maxwell, um, Adnan Khashoggi, among others, but he was also linked to sexual, uh, sexual uh, blackmail activity, uh, basically running it on Capitol Hill uh, with the intention of blackmailing congressmen specifically. Um, and so this is something that's been going on for a long time. So these people in this particular network have been using blackmail to get certain policies um, passed, uh, to protect and shield their activities. I mean, it's very significant, right, that Hoover would have been blackmailed. The FBI has been affected, um, you know, really for uh, since the 40s by this type of activity. And, there, and that obviously affords these networks um, protection at the highest level of law enforcement at the United States. And it's been that way. Um, for decades. So, you know, part of it is about influencing policy, part of it's about protecting uh, their networks and also expanding them because, as I mentioned earlier, this is essentially a business. These are rackets and these people, you know, want more money and they want more power. And so the ultimate goal is to keep those rackets growing and expanding uh, for as long as they can. How does the enterprise um, tie into to Donald Trump? Just because obviously you, you mentioned, you know, one, one of one of uh, of you know Trump's kind of influential sort of uh, people was kind of was tied in with this, and then at the same time, obviously with the FBI, the fact that they've gone and raided um, Trump's house in Florida, but then the judge that signed it off actually represented Epstein as well. So it, it feels like they're connected. How, how does Trump sit into all of it, if at all? So um, as far as his relationship with Epstein goes, it, 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 he sort of left the sort of Epstein circle, I guess you could say, in the early 2000s. So it's hard to know exactly the metamorphosis that, um, it, know what exactly was behind the sort of political transformation uh, that Donald Trump experienced between that period of time and when he uh, ran for president. Um, so, you know, it Earlier on, uh, Trump was like a Clinton donor and stuff like that, and then at some point becomes Hillary Clinton's arch enemy. Like this guy um, has has changed his, what faction he aligns himself with, and his political beliefs. Uh, you know, he used to be a Democrat, right? Now he's like uh, make America great again Republican guy. So you know, things have um, shifted with Donald Trump, and I think a, a big part of what's going on here is is just really. Um, at part of the effort to launch this um, war on domestic terror at the end of the day to get Trump's base so riled up that they that become violent uh, by just engaging in, in activity that drives them wild. Uh, because this infrastructure for a war on domestic terror has been set up uh, for years now. And it, that has to, you know, January 6th wasn't big enough, not enough, you know, people didn't die. It wasn't as uh, it didn't upset people as much as they wanted people to be upset about it. I mean, they've tried to generate a lot of outrage with it, but it's only a very specific segment of the U.S. population that actually cares about it. Um, you know, so I think they're looking for some sort of like 9-11 equivalent to launch a war on domestic terror. And they're hoping that if they rile up Trump's base enough, there'll be some sort of uh, effort to ignite a civil war. So I think that's part of what the FBI is doing here. But the FBI doesn't, you know, I mean, when they go after someone like Trump, I mean, it's obviously a political thing and it's obviously servicing this group in, in some way. Um, the question is, you know, exactly those motives. I mean, I, I can't. Um, you know, speak to that because I don't exactly know. Uh, but the FBI, uh, in terms of like real crimes, it just covers them up. 
Um, you know, it, pretty much every scandal I cover in the book, including ones involving child sex abuse, like the Franklin scandal, covered up by the FBI um, or the J Department of Justice, uh, the BCCI scandal, the Promise scandal, Iran-Contra, uh, Epstein, <laughs> you know, I mean, the list really goes on uh, through the years and, it, it's, and it's been pretty extensive, um, the role that the FBI has played. I mean, you even have former FBI directors being hired by people like Alan Dershowitz to go uh, harass Epstein victims at their homes and stuff like that. I mean, it, it's an agency for hire and it has been for a long time. Um, and it's a it's a key part of the uh, quote unquote swamp in the United States. I think you're exactly right. I think they attempted to, to kind of almost push for some kind of civil war when when Trump was in office. To, to be honest, there were so many different things. And then obviously, you know, with, with the George Floyd uh, killing, it looked like that they were going to that was going to kind of like the blue touch paper, but it doesn't seem to have. So I think you're probably right. They're just kind of poking, aren't they? Poking and poking. And mm -hmm. it, it then ties in as well, I suppose, to, you know, people like Klaus Schwab saying, you know, that it's going to be an angrier world. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, it probably is because of a lot of things that you're doing, to be honest. Um, when it, when <laughs> yeah. it comes to, to the enterprise and, and, and Epstein, Epstein's Island, are these organizations, are these groups, are they, you know, compartmentalized in the sense that to take Epstein's Island, for instance, you know, you see that list of people and, and, I mean, is everyone that goes to his island in on it uh, or even aware of it? Or is it a case of actually, well, no, there's certain people that would have just gone there for, you know, for either financial reasons, business reasons, but actually wouldn't be aware of, of the level uh, of, of the horrors that were going on? So honestly, it's hard to know because a lot of the material that was produced at that island, like the, the videos, for example, that were taken for blackmail purposes, even the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, there were names on binders of like DVDs of, of footage that was either recorded at the Palm Beach residence, the island or the New York residence, right? And all those names were blocked out during the trial. So there's no interest, I guess, on, on the part of the Department of Justice in, in naming um, who those people are and there's been no real investigation i mean after epstein's new york when he was arrested in 2019 and his new york residences uh were raided the fbi waited like a month and a half to go to the island and get the material that was there giving people plenty of time uh, to scrub stuff before epstein was arrested he ordered a cement truck uh, to the island to cover up evidence i mean it's pretty um clear that they they wanted to cover up something obviously insane stuff was going on there but we don't know enough unfortunately because there's been no real investigation um done on those types of activities i think it's quite clear that um, a decent number of people that went there were involved in the sexual abuse of victims but it's also hard to know if you know i don't think it's fair to say that absolutely everyone necessarily that went there was involved in that um, because Epstein was involved in, you know, he had, he had his hands in a lot of different pies, not just the sex trafficking, sex blackmail pie, as I mentioned earlier. Um, he was also a very obviously very deep in financial crimes, uh, offshore banking complexes and, and things of that nature. Um, so he attracted a lot of uh, people, I think, through those avenues as well that may not have necessarily been uh, privy or party to uh, the this, this sexual abuse activities. He, he was massively involved in big pharma as well, wasn't he? In terms of vaccines and, and investment and, and research and stuff like that. Um, which, which well, as far as vaccines, I'm, I, I, I didn't see that personally, but he was involved in efforts uh, that we're seeing now and sort of related to like the genetic technology and vaccine push. He was seeking to DNA data mine people in the Virgin Islands and then sell information on their genomic sequencing to Big Pharma 
um, and this was his company, Southern Trust. So it wasn't necessarily involved in vaccines, but it was part of, um, he was definitely a very early part of this push to sort of create these gene targeted or genetic editing medicines and vaccines. Epstein was definitely involved with that at a very early um, very early stage, while at the same time um, having a avowed interest in transhumanism, eugenics, um, and numerous other things. But specifically, his as far as I'm aware, um, his intersection with, with Big Pharma was through that company specifically, um, trying to uh, mass collect DNA, make a, a biomedical Google, is what he referred to it. And uh, oddly, in his testimony about this company uh, that he gave in 2012, he cryptically says that he was involved, uh, he does lots of work in Africa and that Africa is the perfect place uh, to experiment, essentially. Um, and that is really uh, stunning when you consider, you know, some of his interests. But I personally think that, you know, there's no formal organization of Epstein's uh, in Africa. So I think this is through uh, the Clinton Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that Epstein was doing lots of work in Africa. Uh, because if you look at the flights with uh, with Clinton after he was president and the um, the acknowledged aspects of the uh, Epstein-Gates relationship, he was intimately involved with their philanthropies um, as it relates to Africa. A lot of the HIV AIDS work Clinton actually accredited Epstein as having developed. Um, and I think that's highly significant, um, especially considering uh, that a lot of people have dug more deeply into HIV and AIDS and, and the history of all of that as a, as a consequence of, of COVID-19 and things like that. So to see Epstein's heavy involvement in that and in these philanthropies, when you consider that he's a, a decades-long major player in financial crimes, and that he's you know developing philanthropies for Bill Gates and Bill Clinton, who have you know, in the case of Bill Gates, it's like running a monopoly in a really corrupt corporation. Uh, with the Clintons, it's operating political slush funds, illegal fundraising, and all sorts of stuff. And so this this is the guy they look to uh, to develop their foundations. Right. And to also develop their uh, public health work, um, you know, so I think it is definitely very telling. I, I do because I think everything comes out in the end, you know, whether it takes years or whatever. I, I get the feeling with, with Epstein that, you know, what we know so far is 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 insane. But I think there's more that would probably even blow that out the water. You know, I'm absolutely. If someone, if you've been up to no good and, and you get tipped off that, to clean up, I'm thinking what you're buying, bleach, uh, you know, some cleaning products. He's, he's buying a cement mixer. I mean, that's a, a cement truck, sorry. I mean, that's, a hot, that's, that's just next level. Next level. Insanity. I mean, how much influence do, does the enterprise still have now? And, and, and do, do you think that there will ever be brought to justice? You know, there will ever come a point where actually these things um, get, get, get the, the desserts that, they, that they've, they've earned? Yeah, so I think at some point more of this is going to come to light. But the problem is this, they've essentially taken control of the entire U.S. government. And if you consider that the U.S. government is an empire and there's U.S. client states all over the world, you know, that obviously has a lot of um, implications. But at the same time, you know, there needs to be major criminal investigations into this type of activity. But there won't be because literally because of the extent of corruption demonstrably shows that the government is incapable of investigating itself. So I think um, one of the discussions I would like this book to uh, start for people is what do we do with a situation like that where there has to be a major official investigation uh, because that's the only way to get the information necessary to prosecute 
um, in a, you know, in a situation where the government isn't capable of investigating itself. I mean, it, it is quite a conundrum, but it's true. Um, you know, and as far as the enterprise influences uh, influence goes, I, I quote an Iran-Contra whistleblower from the CIA at the beginning of the book named Bruce Hemings. Um, and to paraphrase what he says, he identifies the enterprise. He says they're uh, bankers, CEOs, intelligence agents, um, you know, all of these, these different um, things. And if you don't stop them now, this is in 1990, uh, they'll take over the entire U.S. intelligence community, the entire government and the world. They'll cut off uh, free speech, free media. They'll crush dissent. Uh, they'll destroy anyone that gets in their way and they will blackmail you if they can. Sex, drugs or deals, whatever it takes. I mean, this is a guy that worked with these people in, in the 1990s and tried to expose them. And that was decades ago. I mean, imagine how far that's advanced uh, to today and how much has happened uh, since then. And a key part of this, as Bruce Hemings points out, had to do with wealth transfers, uh, basically pre-planned economic crises that are controlled demolitions of the economy that see a major wealth transfer go from regular people to these guys, right? So COVID-19 was definitely one of those. The 2008 financial crisis was one of those and the savings and loans crisis in the 1980s was one of those as well. And Epstein was involved definitely in the first two for sure. And it, it's really compelling the stuff about him in the 2008 financial crisis because a lot of that financial crisis uh, began because of the collapse of Bear Stearns. And there's a lot of evidence that Epstein was the pin that popped the bubble and essentially he collapsed for Bear Stearns himself. And he was a major client of that bank. That's where he got a start. Um, and there's a lot of really crazy stuff about the Epstein Bill Gates relation, uh, sorry, uh, the Epstein uh, Bear Stearns relationship. I mean, going way back. Uh, right before he became CIA director for Reagan, Bill Casey was the lawyer representing Bear Stearns. Um, and Epstein ended up leaving uh, that firm uh, under suspicious circumstances, not that long after Bill Casey joined the CIA. No one has really probed the, the Bill Casey Bear Stearns relationship because as soon as uh, Epstein leaves uh, Bear Stearns, he ends up being involved with people in Iran Contra like Adnan Khashoggi and people, other people that take on Adnan Khashoggi as a client in that time uh, with Epstein are people that work directly under Casey and the Reagan campaign and were involved in sex blackmail, uh, Roy Cohn and Robert Keith Gray. I mean, it's just like really nuts the stuff going on there. And then he becomes one of Bear Stearns biggest clients. And then he collapses the funds that lead to the collapse um, of the bank itself in the larger 2008 economic crisis, which created a lot of benefit for people he was friendly with and that are in his network, but you know, a lot of economic pain for everyone else. So in the context of him being an intelligence linked individual and a financial criminal, what do we make of that? And so um, at the end of the day, I think when you're looking at Jeffrey Epstein, a lot of the extreme focus on the sex crimes is to keep you uh, from looking at the financial crimes and the intelligence connections, uh, because they're really significant and have implications for like regular people, not just for Epstein victims. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's a really uh, far reaching case. And the more you look into Epstein, it becomes abundantly clear, as you alluded to earlier, that there is so much more to come out, um, especially about what he was doing in the 1990s with the Clinton White House. I mean, some of the stuff I found and I thought I I knew about it, right? Till I started writing a book about it. And it is it is just jaw dropping some of the stuff that was going on at the Clinton White House uh, with Epstein's involvement, just uh, totally beyond. So um, anyway, I don't want to ramble <laughs> too much a, about such that. such a, a tiny web though, isn't it? Like where you just have the, the, the yeah. same names pop up left, right and over somewhere. and over again. So, so where, where, where can people get where can people get your book? 
Okay, so you can order it directly from the publisher, which is Trine Day, T-R-I-N-E Day. Um, for people in the UK, we're talking to uh, some distributors in, um, in the UK itself so that shipping costs aren't so high because the publisher is based in Oregon in the United States. So okay. shipping costs to the UK uh, are a little high. So I'll have more information on that on that soon. Uh, but if you look at my website, we'll be putting up um, a, a sort of a FAQ page uh, for stuff for the book that will uh, include links for you know easier uh, UK shipping options um, as well. You can also pre-order through Amazon, but I, I would encourage you not to support uh, Jeff Bezos's corporate empire. He was very uh, you know Ghislaine Maxwell liked to brag about how Jeff Bezos was her pal, pal, uh, best friend, whatever. So um, don't give him money if you can if you can avoid it. I. I would prefer that you didn't, but there's also going to be an audiobook and an ebook, so you know those are options to consider as well. That's great. One Nation Under Blackmail. Thank you so much, Whitney. We appreciate this. Absolutely. Thank you. Hello, I'm Jamie Ike, CEO and founder of Iconic. People regularly ask me why do we charge for our services. Well, the answer is simple. The ambition here is to build the biggest independent media platform in the world with the highest production standards. We recently introduced a brand new $7.99 pricing plan to make Iconic affordable for all. For just a couple of cups of coffee a month, you can access the world's premier media source. Take out a seven day free trial today and come and see what Iconic has to offer.